This podcast was recorded following prolonged exposure to the wine vortex. Listener discretion is advised. The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 61. The Box of Delights. Hello boys and girls and a very warm welcome to the Christmas special of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And tonight we have got something rather lovely. What are we watching? We're going to watch the Box of Delights. Now, this is something I have not seen since it was first on in 1984. And I can remember the theme music, clear as a bell, having never seen it for 36 years. What's the premise of the Box of the Delights? Well, before we start on the premise, I have a, a bit of a confession to make in that I never watched it first time around. I don't even remember it being on. Oh, really? No, oh, I, I, this was a I massive saw this thing. about 10 years ago. I know lots and lots of people who say it's an integral part of their Christmas memories as a child. And it, it is very good, but I don't remember watching it at the time. Well, the 1980s were filled with this type of christmas serial running in the it, they were in the uh, weeks running up to christmas so you have things like the chronicles of narnia uh, there were other which i things, never watched which again but uh, you would have been sort of late teens when these things were on so i'd, I'd have been mid-teens yeah um so I, I would probably have seen this as a bit kiddish probably despite the fact that i was still avidly watching doctor who and trapdoor a couple of years later well, yes, very true. But that, that was a girl I worked with who used to video every episode of the, the Trapdoor. And I went down to a Trapdoor evening with her and her husband. But Box of Delights. This was a six-part serial from 1984. It was broadcast in November and December. I suspect on Sundays, but I've not checked. Now, because I've not seen this since it was on, I'm going into this cold. I want to be re-surprised all over again. But it stars Patrick Troughton as a sort of friendly old man, as I remember. And I can't imagine Patrick Troughton playing a friendly old man in anything else. Um, I can. I can imagine an actor of the calibre of Patrick Troughton playing whatever he damn well wanted to and whatever he uh, damn well chose to do and doing a fantastic job of it. So I can imagine Patrick Troughton playing everything from Santa Claus to Mephistopheles and being superb. I'm not going to... Is that fanboyish enough? I I think from both of us it is. I I don't really want to go into this in too much depth, to be honest. Um, We've both got the Wikipedia page primed, but I think it's a case of diving in, seeing what it's like, and uh, just reveling in the magic of it. I will be cast back to a six-year-old boy. You will be cast back to a 40-year-old man (laughs) who was basking in the glory of a, a nice bit of 80s TV. What have we got for tonight? Well, tonight, courtesy again of the Little Gin Box, we have Old Bakery Garden Party Gin. There's 7.5% by volume, and it's from London's oldest illicit gin distillery. Mm. Garden Party Gin was created for a famous garden party 
I mean, so famous it doesn't tell you what it was, and embodies relaxation and fun. It has no artificial colouring or flavouring. It has strawberry and black pepper with a warm peppery finish, and the bottle colour from batch to batch varies as it is all natural. I mean, there's some horrible grammar in this that Mm. I've kind of corrected as I've gone along. And apparently, we are supposed to garnish this with a handful of spanked mint. Baby, baby, spanked. Ooh, now, there's a lot coming out of the glass. It's a bit pink. Have you smelled it? it? it It's a really nice smell coming off it. It's sort of... Oh, that is Sweet and strawberry brilliant. But with a bit of a bit of spice to it as well, which will be the pepper. Let's give it a taste. Oh, hello. That's <laughs> lovely. That really is rather nice. Oh, um, wow. Oh, I think it, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It starts off as very sort of sweet and strawberry, and then the pepper builds up, and you end up with really quite a nice tingle. Mm. Now, see, you and I are both reasonably similar in the respect that we don't like overly peppery gins. This is not an overly peppery gin. No, it's it's like the ultra chilli vodka things. You overdo it so much, you can't taste anything else. There's no point in doing it. It just becomes a sort of, oh, with the chilli vodka, it becomes an endurance thing. But with uh, over-peppered gins, it just absolutely drowns out everything else. It's like over-cardamom gins. All you taste is the cardamom. And I I like cardamom a lot, but I like to taste other things with it. Strawberry and pepper is a a classic flavour combination. This blends the two together absolutely seamlessly. Well, I've got to say, this is the second of the peppered fruit gins that we've had that I'm going to give five out of five to. I think this is brilliant. Oh, yes. Um, absolutely five out of five for me. This is absolutely delicious. Old Bakery Garden. Even the name invites you into the glass. It does, even without the spanked mint. Seeing as we have done an, an episode in the past that featured the character of Aunt Mint, I wonder what she felt about being spanked. <laughs> Are you all right? <laughs> that's really nice. Bloody oh, that's hell. A, yeah, that's lovely. Mm. Mm. Right, so clutching this rather delicious gin in grubby little mitts. I suppose we should, as it's a Christmas thing, we should have mittens on. Spaff, if you could stay here and make sure the fire is well stoked. Very well. Here we are in the bowels of Podcasting House, surrounded as we are by all the myriad lost film, television and radio from the mists of time. What are we rescuing today? Well, I think that there is only one thing that we can rescue today, which is the radio adaptations of the Box of Delights. There were at least three of these, weren't there? And there's quite a long gap. Um, There there have been six. The uh, original adaptation from Children's Hour was in 1943. And bearing in mind the book was published in 1935, um, it was reasonably contemporary. Then there was a 1948, a 1955, Saturday Night theatre in 1966 which was then repeated a couple of times in the late 60s that version was remade in 1977 and there was another version in 1995 i'm not sure how many of the early versions survive or not um according to uh tv brain which is more a tv thing than a uh, a radio thing and they, they themselves say that they're not brilliant on their radio archives and there are a lot of lot of gaps but they do list the first episode of the 1966 version as missing. Radio from the 1940s doesn't have a uh, doesn't have a brilliant survivability, so I suspect there's bits of that that are missing as well. Now there are some interesting people in the cast 
in the 1943 version, Charles Hawtrey played the mouse. And in the 1955 version and the 1966 version, Patricia Hayes played the young Kay Harker. And in 1966, Cyril Shapps was Cole Hawkins. So there have been some good people in it. Oh, Stanley Unwin was one of the rats. Uh, so there have been some less than good people because I've always found him about as funny as watching Paid Dry. <laughs> Well, actually, um, and Cyril Shapps reprised his role in the 1977 version. Well, it's one of those things I've not heard any of the radio versions of, and I'm quite sad about that, because I think it's this is one of those things that would be really, really nice. The BBC have always done this sort of thing really, really well. I know you're not a fan, but The Lord of the Rings was superb. That was 1981. Yeah, and the, the 1995 version is a two-hander uh, between Lionel Jeffries and Donald Sindon. Two-hander of... Box of Delights. Well, with that raft of archive material suitably rescued, should we go and watch the TV version? Yes, let's. Box of Delights, uh, it was a BBC TV adaptation of John Macefield's fancy novel, Box of Delights from 1935, broadcast on BBC One between the 21st of November and the 24th of December 1984, um, adapted by Alan Seymour and directed by Rennie Ray. The series cost a million pounds to make, which is equivalent to 3.24 million now, and at the time was the most expensive children's series that the BBC had made. And it was widely acclaimed and won a number of BAFTA and RTS awards, particularly for its special effects. Oh, John Mosefield was the Poet Laureate of the UK at the time it was published. Bloody hell. The Poet Laureate of the UK between 1930 and his death, death in 1967. Yes, uh, one of his most famous quotes is from a poem he wrote called Sea Fever. Give me the tallest ship and a star to sail her by, which won't interest you at all. No. So, um, without any of this guff, shall we just watch episode one because I'm itching to press play? Apparently, <laughs> just reading Wikipedia, <laughs> it took the producer 10 years to obtain the rights. There'd been uh, plans to make a Hollywood film, so the, the rights had had to be renegotiated. Paul Stone, the producer, said the delay was a blessing since the story called for feats of animation and special effects, which television simply couldn't have realised at that time. Well, shall we find out what they are? Yes, let's fire away. Excuse me, sir. Is that a Punch and Judy show? I am, so to speak, a showman. With the secrets of my show... They aren't to be had by everyone, are they? You must get home to seekings. Time and tide and buttered eggs wait for no man. But one thing you can do for me. The wolves are running. Perhaps you would do something to stop their bite. Wolves? Right. Well, that was episode one of The Box of Delights from 1984. The episode title was When the Wolves Are Running. That was magical. So are you feeling six years old again? I am. I am. I'm the, the log fire is burning here at Richardson Towers. I've had my glass of gin. The weather is howling outside and it's lovely and toasty warm inside. Everything's in darkness, lit by candlelight. I, I could not feel more Christmassy in the middle of November if I tried. I love this. What was the episode about? You do this bit better than I It was I about do. 25 minutes long. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. um, 
Box of Delights is the story of a young lad called Kay Harker who is going home for the Christmas holidays and on the way to his train meets a Punch and Judy man called Cole Hawlings, played by Patrick Troughton. And on the train meets two fake clergyman con men who con him out of some money in a card trick. And when he leaves the train, he realises that he's ta- they've taken his watch and his purse of coins as well. When he gets to his home train station, he finds Cole Hawlings there already. In view of how the story develops, you assume that he's there waiting for him. But it, it, it appears to be a, uh, something of an accident because they're, they're there on the same train. He is met by, I'm not entirely sure who she's, she's supposed to be. Is she some sort of governess or companion or something? Well, I think she's a dante, isn't she? Isn't she? I don't know. It, I thought it didn't, that's it didn't how really it comes say. across. Anyway, there's a young woman who, who meets him and says that there's a group of other children who are going to be staying at the house for the holidays because their parents have had to go off and do something expositional. <laughs> um, and then there's a lot of faffing about in the, sl- in the snow. He persuades uh, Cole Hawlings to come and do a Punch and Judy show. The aunt companion, whoever she is, has to disappear off and look after her brother in, in London. So the kids are basically left on their own, apart from the army of servants that the massive house appears to need over the, the Christmas break. And the only one that's given any any kind of depth is uh, one of the girls who wants to be a tomboy and is running around firing guns and things. But all, all the rest are a bit two-dimensional, is possibly a bit generous, but uh, may come into their own a little bit later on, I suspect not. The two clergymen, con men from the train, when they were running away, turned into wolves or dogs or something like that. And there are a lot of uh, large dogs running around the area in the snow. Kay is told to give a message to an old woman and he gives this message to to an old woman who's got a glowing ring on her finger. And then he overhears the two clergymen from the the train having a conversation with somebody who's giving them instructions who knows exactly who Cole Hawlings is and knows exactly who Kay is. There is a Punch and Judy show which Cole Hawlings gives at the end of which the local bishop says that his cathedral is going to be holding its 1,000th annual Christmas service and everybody is invited and that there's a, a Christmas party that he's going to be having at his bishopric and um, he asks the Punch and Judy man to come and, and give a show there as well. In the meantime, Cole Hawlings has demonstrated this magical box that he's got that uh, that can make sort of wishes come true and, and do all sorts of magic to Kay by asking what he would most like to see and he says, well, there's a bird I particularly want to see but I don't think it even exists. And he wants to see a phoenix. The box creates a uh, a phoenix inside the fire. And there's some very good animation doing that. And then at the end of the episode, um, or towards the end of the episode, Cole Hawlings recognises or sees a a mountainscape in, in Switzerland, enlarges it, brings a donkey out of it, gets onto the donkey and rides off into the picture, which shrinks back to normal size. Kay then then goes to sleep and is woken up by wolves howling, goes out into the snow, finds a a white horse, which he gets on and starts riding, and then rides towards what looks like an ancient citadel under attack, chased by wolves, doesn't know how he's going to get in, and the the horse that he's on suddenly starts levitating. And the, the end of the episode is him looking down at all these people in sort of... Abject terror. Well, yeah, they, wherever they are is under assault and in, in flames and things. And, they, and there's a giant horse flying over them. So, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're allowed to be a bit, a bit freaked. But they're, they're kind of dressed in oldie-worldie peasant smocks and furs and things. And that's the end of the episode. 
The first thing that strikes me from reading Wikipedia is actually that the theme music is an arrangement of the first Noel, and it's not immediately apparent. You've got that music box motif that underpins the thing, and I think that is the thing that people remember most about the theme tune, that then, at the very end, turns into the first Noel, but it's so Christmassy. Oh, I never knew that. Go on. Abner Brown, the villain, and has a, a partner in crime who turns up later called Sylvia Daisy Pouncer, played by Patricia Quinn. Yes. She of Dragonfire. Um, I hadn't realised they were married. Yes, she was his wife. That's usually what marriage involves. It is. They filmed this in the snow. It wasn't originally meant to be filmed in the snow, but they were surrounded by inches and inches of snowfall overnight to the point where they had to film in the hotel that they were staying in. But I think it just makes it even more magical. The whole thing is just that 1930s boy's own story style that lends itself so well to BBC dramas of the period. Yeah, I mean, the problem with that is it, it, it's a kind of nostalgia of nostalgia because True. Yeah. it's kind of a, a fantasy 1930s. And I know it was, it was written at the time, so the story is contemporaneous, but that whole jolly hockey sticks, home for the home for the winter, cows on the doorstep, the perfect Enid Blyton family Christmas. I'm not sure it really existed for very many people. Oh, no, absolutely. And that's um, why I think all these books and stories of the time were just so popular because they, as you, that's a very good way of putting it, a nostalgia for a nostalgia, even at the present time, that they could be living in this world that was surrounded by a very comfortable home life that might not necessarily have been there for the vast majority of people. But pure escapism. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the problem is that it's a very sweet, gentle story. It sort of ambles along. I suspect this would bore the shit out of the vast majority of people under the age of 40 because it's that sort of famous five, Phoenix yeah. and the Carpet, Chronicles of Narnia, that whole nostalgia for a time that probably never actually existed. Agreed, and, yep. And this has kind of translated itself into the 40-odd-year-old adults that we see around who have nostalgia for a British empire that never existed, driving Brexit. I knew you were going to take this down the Brexit route. This, when You are not spoiling Christmas this year. This is about um, Box of Delights. It's nothing to do with Brexit. You'll get well, that in a week's of, time. It kind of ties in. Anyway. I'm, I'm not saying it, it's your push behind it, but the vast majority of people who want Brexit want it because they've got, got this idealised idea of a little Britain that is recreating a, a British empire that never never existed except in people's imagination. Oh, I'm so, not right, sure would, they do. I know several Brexiteers and none of them have got this... Maybe I just know a very, very small cabal of Brexiteers who I just have it for their own reasons. It's nothing to do with Enid Blyton's... Different kind of solution. Okay. Um, Anyway, this beautiful, beautiful piece of television. It is. It's very sweet. It's very of its time. It's it's lovely. It's great to watch. This is perfect. What a magical piece of television. I've really enjoyed the past half hour. I have to say that looking at it now, there are parallels to other TV programmes. And the one that it really struck me, uh, the similarity with, is Neverwhere. Which I've never seen, but it's very much of the same style as uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. Specifically, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which came only a year or two afterwards. Which I've never seen. We must do it, because I think if you enjoy this, you will love Chronicles of Narnia. 
It was, a, again, a really, really well-made piece of television. Perfect Christmas viewing, set in the snow, children's fairy tale written in the, I think that was from the 30s as well. Yeah, it's C.S. Yeah, Lewis, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. I mean, I, I've read all the books. I read all the books when I was a kid, which is possibly why I didn't watch it by the time I was a, a teenager, because I just thought it was a bit kiddish. I don't even remember knowing it was on. But would that have been my attitude? Because, you know, that I, I watched and enjoyed Chucky which was a, a book I'd read when I was when I was a kid. Yeah, but Chucky was a little bit more... I seem to remember, that was an ITV thing, I seem to remember it being a little bit sinister, actually. And this isn't. There are some um, really sinister things underlying this. They're dodgy clergymen inveigling themselves ne- <laughs> next to a young lad on the train. Agreed, but they are signposted as mwahaha characters rather than paedophiles. It, it's the way it would be seen now, but no, it, it, yeah. it was more they just came across as creepy and oily and sinister. But Chucky, because I've never seen it since it was on, I know this is going to sound bizarre in a major segue, the one thing I remember about Chucky is some young boy smashing apart what looked like a triangle of clay balls with an iron bar. Yeah, so um, we'll come back to that. We, we can do Chucky at some point. Possibly the difference is that Chucky is very, very definitely science fiction, whereas this is this is more down the fantasy route. As, as a teenager, I was more science fiction than fantasy. And what fantasy I was interested in was um, swords and sorcery, dragon lands, that kind of thing. Before we go down that route, which is a route I would happily go down, let's drag it back. I'm very much, unfortunately, this year we're having to record separately because of COVID and lockdown, but I am very much looking forward to episode two. So separately, but together, charge your glass. Let's have a look at Box of Delights, episode two. Did you get close enough to uh, recognise any of the parties? As I told you, we think we're sure the old man kidnapped was old Mr. Hawlings, who gave his punch and duty show at my house yesterday evening. I shall make a note. That'll be all, young gentleman. Okay, so that was episode two of Box of Delights. Simon, do you want to give us a praise of what it was about? At the end of episode one, Kay Harker was doing a fly through the air with his horse, chased by wolves and landing in some sort of ancient Saxon or something fort. And then going forward to the start of episode two, the protections of the fort have broken down. The wolves have come in. Blokey in armour that you kind of assume is King Arthur hands him a sword and says, help defend. And he flaps the sword around. <laughs> There are wolves running about. You never actually see any swords connect with the wolves. And then he's pulled out of this dreamscape to meet up with uh, Patrick Fountain's character, Cole Cole Hawkins, Hawkins. who says that there are people after him because he's got the box of delights. He can't cope with modern type magic. And the person who really owns the box of delights is trapped in the uh, the old time and hands it over to this weekend to, to, to look after it. And vaguely explains how it works, and you press this, and it go, you go fast, and you press this, and you go small, um, and then he buggers off. Kay Harker goes out with his cousin early one morning. Oh, and this weird scene in a pantry where they nick a lot of jam it's tarts or something. Very sort of boys' own were the jam tarts and sausage rolls and cloudy lemonade. It's very, very 1920s, 1930s adventure book thing. Yeah. So they go out what is supposed to be incredibly early in the morning. 
but seeing as it's supposed to be December and it's bright light, it can't actually be that early. They see the Punch and Judy man being kidnapped by the the weird priests. So they go and report this to the, the police station and the policeman has known Kay for years and years and years and they have a, a mutual interest in stage magic. And so he doesn't take an awful lot of notice of it. They say, oh, it, it's probably the, the local RAF people who are... Um, no, they they were seen taking off in a plane. You don't actually see the takeoff, but you see the plane in the sky. Yeah, and later on in the episode, you're kind of ex- supposed to interpret that it it's a car turning into a plane. That was the way that I mm. interpreted it. Yeah. Anyway, it, it's the local RAF lads who've been having a lark, and the police inspector talks to Cole Hawkins, who says, "Yeah, it's all fine." Uh, Kate gets about three words with him, which does sound like him. Goes back home. Then he opens the box of delights and meets Hearn the well, hunter. Oh, yes, that happens. Yeah, he meets her in The Hunter. There's a cartoony thing where he turns into birds and fish and stags and all sorts of things and then goes back to normal life, goes small, meets up with an ice skating mouse, and they want to go to this pub where a meeting is happening. So there's this tunnel thing where they'd see a load of pirate rats who try to chase them, but then the box of lights gets them out of it. They go to the pub, they see the main villain, whose name I forget, talking about how much he wants to do nasty things to Kay Arca. And that's the end of the episode. It was a bit paddy. Um, yeah. To be fair, I've got to say, they've clearly spent a lot of money on it in 1984 terms. And all the documentation and internet proof bears this out. The visual sequences are very, very elaborate. And to be honest, they're really going to have worked to get those two come together in 1984, even with Quantel. It was the most expensive children's TV program up until that point that the BBC had done. At the time, it would really, really have shown. It's not aged badly. I can't say that I look at it and think that's a bit crap. But story-wise, it seems to have sort of ground to a bit of a halt. Hearn the Hunter appears for the second time. He was in the first episode, but very, very briefly. But I'm not entirely sure, because Hearn the Hunter is sort of this conglomerate figure in English mythology. But anyway, he guides the boy through this whole sort of elaborate dreamscape, looking for wolves. And it's a good five minutes worth of basically padding it's a very beautiful sequence but it doesn't drive the story anywhere uh is it a very beautiful sequence because it's the sword in the stone but the animation isn't as good there is nothing else about it i thought the the phoenix in the first episode worked quite well because it was there in among the live action and it fits in quite well i thought the getting on a donkey and wandering off into the distant central vr style worked quite well because it was tying in with other stuff this i didn't think worked well it was quite cheap looking animation may not have been cheap at the time but it's quite cheap looking animation that kind of does what the sword and the stone did have many decades earlier yeah without disney's money there is a chunk of ignore the rat oh and the mouse yeah there is um which at the time may have looked great um now not really but even the mouse sort of ice casing round that grating in the wall holding yeah, its own he, tail yeah you've got to look past these things really because he he suddenly shrinks himself down and wanders through the underfloor 
stuff and finds this roller skating mouse that knows who he is. He's wearing some weird scarf with bells on it. And it's just suddenly prepared to help, even though they have never met before. They've never had any interaction before. There's never been any mention of a mouse before. It's just, Hello, I've come down here and, oh, yes, you, you will do. Come here and help. Well, I actually found myself wondering, have I missed something in episode one where Kay meets this mouse? Because he literally just says, hello, Kay. And Kay is sort of fine with that. Hello, mouse. Shall we go on an adventure? Oh, yes, go on then. Oh, I'm a bit scared. Don't worry. I don't know whether it's the adaptation or... I'm I'm feeling so harsh about this. I remember watching it, but I don't remember any of this. And I think uh, adults watching kiddies TV pick bigger f***ing holes in it than children do. Yeah, th- that's true. And I'm, I'm really trying not to be harsh because, to be honest, this is boring the arse off me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm really trying not to be harsh because I know this is a lot of people's Christmas. I know that this is a huge deal for an awful lot of people, but I didn't see this as a child and it really isn't a, it's not so bad that I I wouldn't carry on with it if we weren't doing this as a podcast, but realistically, I'm not wildly interested in it. I think that we've gone from sort of a good speed in the first episode to a bit pedestrian in the second. And I'm not entirely... We've got another four episodes to go. I'm not entirely sure that the story is going to be at maximum warp for the next three episodes. I suspect in episode six, everything will kick off. But I've got a horrible feeling that episodes two to five will be a bit of, at the time, beautiful padding. Yeah. And looking at it through modern eyes and not having the childhood emotional connection to it, it's kind of not for me. In the same way as I suspect the Chronicles of Narnia, I was probably a bit old at the time to be absolutely fascinated by them. And looking back, it's a bit dated, both in terms of the way that it looks so as, as a 1980s production and in terms of the way that it's written as a 1930s book. Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, even now, I seem to remember as being pretty good and better um, than this. Don't they do Prince Caspian and Voyage of the, the Dawn Treader? Because they've both got Reaper Cheap in, and I really like the character of Reaper Cheap. I'm fairly sure they were both done as one six-part serial. Because in Prince Caspian, not actually a lot happens. I've not read it since I was about 12, so and I never saw the series. Yeah, we will do that in A Christmas to Come. But for the moment, it's on with part three of Box of Delights. It's not the classic that it's hailed as. Anyway, let's find out. Let's run VT, episode three. What has the old man done with that box? Abner, dear, it's too late now to cry over spilt milk. He could have handed it to somebody. The Jones children, or the boy, Kay Harker, your ancient pupil. That little ruffian. You don't appear to have a very high opinion of the boy. He was a child for whom I had the utmost detestation and contempt. A thoroughly morbid, dreamy, idle muff. Anyway, my ideal, the old man would not have trusted such a treasure to a child he had not met before that afternoon. Well, then there remains the guardian, this Caroline Louisa. The mistress of the house. A woman to be trusted. Okay, that was episode three. Now, it opens with Kay and Mouse spying on Abner at the Prince Rupert Arms. They're in the skirting board, all miniaturised. Abner's going on and on to 
pretty much anyone that will listen to his little entourage, who mainly seem to consist of clergy and life-size rats, about how he's obsessing over this box and how he must find Kay, because the box is everything, etc., etc. Having overheard that they're planning to kidnap various people in order to get to Kay, they overhear what the, I think, is it the schoolmistress? I can't even remember. It's so boring, I can't remember. Sylvia Pouncer, uh, British Quinn's character. Yeah. Yeah, no, she she's Kay's old governess because That's right, she, yeah. she was a protagonist in the book that this is a sequel to. The Midnight People, isn't That's it? That's the one, Mid- yes. The Midnight Folk. So it's revealed uh, that she couldn't stand Kay when she was the governess, and she's involved with all this too. Kay and Mouse turn round and see that the rats have found their way to where they are in the skirting board. They use the box to fly all the way back to the house. And then there's a bit of a series of sort of Christmas adventures. They go to a Punch and Judy show, they go to the church hall, and not an awful lot happens. Kay has another dream, and then he wakes up, and they they all decide that they're going to, because Caroline Louisa isn't going to get back till the day afterwards, they're all going to go down to the river and sail the boat that Kay has had as a present under the Christmas tree. While they're sailing the boat on the river, they see a plane land in the distance, and Abner and his gang get out and come looking for them by the river. Kay uses the box to miniaturise himself and his three friends, and they escape on the little boat. Unfortunately, at the end of the episode, they're heading towards a weir, and everybody's screaming at Kay, do something, do something. What happens next? Well, quite honestly, I don't care. I am really bored by this. Yeah, I I know this is a a hugely, hugely popular cult classic for Christmas, and I I suspect there's a massive amount of nostalgia from people who saw it the first time around. There's very little in the way of a plot. What it is, is a series of set pieces, really. And I have to say, it only really hit me during this episode. The direction isn't up to much, because everything's done in this sort of rushed fashion with very odd camera angles that you just wouldn't do now and to be honest other stories done at the time were much better directed than this it just doesn't draw you in all the characters seem to know one another or of one another without ever having met and it's just very very odd i don't actually think that it helps that patrick troughton who is front and center in the listings and the title sequence isn't in it And he's not in it for a great chunk of it, to be honest. So far, he's not exactly been a main character. No, he's he's the sort of important figure in the background rather than somebody who's advancing the plot. But, you know, Gandalf was that. It was done in a much more skillful way. You cared about the other characters. You and I have a different opinion on Lord of the Rings. We do, but the characters in Lord of the Rings were better rounded. The situations were better explained. The plot was explained. It wasn't just A, B, B and C with no actual connection, A followed towards B, which then led on to C. In the background, D and E were going on, which tied into the whole lot. This just seems completely disconnected all the time. It just seems that they stumble from one situation to another. Wherever Kay goes, Abner turns up with his mates for no logical reason. I'm just finding it all a little bit disjointed. It's Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the question is, is this a sort of lacklustre adaptation of 
a good book or is this a brave attempt to adapt quite a poor book? And without having having read it, um, I can't really make a, a judgment on that. All I can do is say that watching it, I'm really not not enthralled. It's a fantasy England that may or may not have existed, probably didn't. But the whole Enid Blyton world of England and children growing up in posh country houses and having jolly wizzo adventures during the holidays. But it's been done so much better elsewhere. The Narnia books, yeah, for example. Or Swallows and Amazons or mm. Winnie the Pooh books and, and, and things like that. For, as a, a kid's fancy from around about the, that era is so much better. Well, the famous five stuff for... Even something like the family at Red Roofs, all that Enid Blyton stuff. So I'm just not gripped by the story. I feel a bit disingenuous being so meh about this because I know so many people for whom this is Christmas mm. in, in the way that Chimes of Midnight would be for you and mm. Bell Book and Candle is for me. But I'm really just not feeling it. Just while it's fresh in my mind, the music is by Roger Lim. It's very, right. very Caves of Androzani. They're basically interchangeable, the soundtracks. The other thing that I've noticed is that there's actually some quite famous people under some of under some of the makeup. So that the pirate rat was Nick Berry, who okay is a bit yesterday's man now, but at the time would have been a big name. I and mean, post Eastenders would he have been Heartbeat? Heartbeat, yeah. Would that have been at around this time? I, my recollection is that that was a few years later. But he would he would certainly have been Eastenders. And one of the Greek soldiers was Julian Sands. Yes, uh, underneath one of the rat costumes was Bill Wallace, who was in well take your pick he was in everything he was always a secondary character he was never a leading man but he cropped up in everything in the 80s yeah so as we find our heroes teetering on the edge of a weir at the end of episode three let's run vt on episode four and see if things improve where the devil are those children guard to seem to have disappeared or here over there wasn't it exciting i wish we could do it again I don't know where they could have got to. Get over to those rocks! Nothing like children for leading one of their hands, one. But they're into the stream. Let's have a look. OK, things improved. They got out of it. Phew. And following on from the adventures on the river, they realise that Maria, one of their friends, is missing. She's been kidnapped by Abner and held in a convenient prison cell in the church. Kay and Peter, meanwhile, they go off to the hills to try and solve the mystery of the kidnappings. And lo and behold, Abner and his gander there having a swim. Now, it doesn't look overly warm, but they find the hideaway and they overhear in plain sight what the plans are and, all again, all the clergy are involved. It's because a very long story short, again, not a lot of plot in this episode, but at the end, they're going through the history and Abner reveals that Cole Hall is actually is a historical figure, isn't he? Um, and a real historical figure. It's Ramon Lull, isn't it? That's right, yes. Who not only had the elixir of life, but also had the box of delights. So they estimate he's between 500 and 750 years old, which sounds suspiciously similar to another time-travelling old man that he played. Ramon Lull was about 1300, so he'd, he'd be 700 years old, wouldn't he? Uh, so, yes, basically, the lithograph in this book that they found shows Ramon Lull. It's clearly a younger version of Cole Hawkins, and that's where the episode ends. Again, Abner ranting and screaming that he needs this box. In what I have to say is a very radio performance, it's horribly overacted 
And Patricia Quinn's performance is very arch and overacting. That whole thing where they're taunting the, the kid in the prison cell was just really quite nasty, actually. Mm. And then they're going to take her out and put her into the scrounger, which is a room with what sounds like a big grinder in it that will turn her into dog biscuits. So there are elements of nasty in it, the macabre, certainly. See, that bit I thought, I thought was actually quite good. and I had the potential to inject a, a bit of drama and tension. Yeah. The problem is that you had one actor who was doing it for melodrama, one actor who was doing it for laughs, and a kid actor who was just so wooden it wasn't true. So the, the scenes really didn't work because either Abner needed to come on board and play it as comedy, or Patricia Quinn needed to be more menacing. And again, in between, there was an awful lot of... I won't say padding, but scenes that didn't go anywhere. They were only there for a bit of background colour. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but the way that it's done in this is just they're in there without any plot advancement whatsoever. And then suddenly one of the characters will say, oh my, I've forgotten that such and such isn't here. We must go. There was the whole Christmas party thing. There was the whole posset thing. Beautiful little scenes, but they didn't advance the plot at all or really seem to fit. And they get back from their walk and their house has been ransacked. And it's just, oh dear. <laughs> Somebody appears to have been here. Is it Paula? Oh, well, while we're on this subject, Paula. Professor Quatermass's office. Yes, speaking. Is it something bad? What do we think overall on the scale? Several million out of five. <laughs> It's made even worse by the fact that nobody has a normal accent. It's either incredibly RP Mm -hmm. or yokel. There is nothing in between. There's nobody who talks normally in this. That is true, actually. So how many Paulers are we going to give this? About a million. I mean, it it has to be... No, it, it doesn't have to be five out of five because you've got people like the police inspector who are painfully yokel. Yes, and the maid. Uh, yeah, isn't... as I say, nobody talks normally. So I'm I'm going to go with four. I would say four, yes. Because the RP is incredibly RP. Although to be, to be fair, Patrick Trout talks normally. You, you, you really don't see very much of him. It's such a shame. You, I think this thing would have been lifted massively if he had been. I mean, obviously, they can only work with the source material. But if Cole Hawkins had been front and centre and Patrick Troughton had been in this all the way throughout, I think we'd be given a very different review here. Yeah, because it would be a very different story. I mean, this is a kid's story with the kids front and centre and none of them are particularly good actors. I'll tell you what it feels like, and we've discussed this before with other things. It feels like a Doctor Who story without the Doctor in it. A fairly shit one. But you know what I mean? When you have a spin-off, you're sort of doing Doctor Who without the Doctor. And you always feel like something's missing. You always feel like the main character's missing in some yeah, way. N- none of the spin-offs have been as, as dull as this. No, I'm, I'm not saying that, but you know what I mean? It's almost like the main character in this is missing. Like I say, it, it's a Gandalf thing, isn't it? And it's done so the kids can be front and centre because Lord of the Rings, if Gandalf was there, the plot would take about three minutes because he'd just wave his magic stick and it'd all be done and sorted. Um, <laughs> and the same with this, all the stuff about learning how to use the box and blah, 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 blah wouldn't be done because Cole Hawkins knew how to use the how to use the box. So 
we're not really honest, enthused this, about this, are we? We just no. I'm this doesn't really come across, come along to me as a as a Doctor Who story without the Doctor. No, I've come across badly that I don't mean it's a Doctor Who story without the Doctor. I mean it feels like a Doctor Who spin-off. It's a story where you're constantly expecting or hoping that the main character turns up and they don't. Oh, so you feel that there's something missing. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing I wanted to say about episode four is the resolution of the cliffhanger from episode three was dreadful. Mm. Tiny little boat going down a weir and doesn't overturn or capsize or get smashed to pieces completely unrealistic it's obviously going down on a bit of string when you see it that's suspending disbelief way too far if they'd done the going swift and it had sort of flown itself over the weir and landed again that would have been much better but just letting it go over the weir oh we, we hope we're going to be okay oh look we're not even wet yeah a load of bollocks should we with some trepidation crack on with episode five i'm hoping it picks up because you know six part doctor who's Two, three, and four are sometimes a bit filler if it's a fairly ropey story that's been dragged out too long and pulls it all back together in, in five and six. And, and episode one was quite good. Yeah, so, I, I loved episode one, but it's so been yeah. a, a special effects showcase for the past three episodes, and I'm getting quite bored with this now. I'd like them to get back on with the story. Let's see. Ron VT, episode five. Sir, I have your box of delights. Although it really belongs to the man who came to you with the elixir. He still lives on in your time, and his elixir works. Magnificent. But as for my box, it's no more than a silly little toy. A toy? A silly little... That box is very, very powerful, and has caused no end of trouble in my own time and in my own town. If you would only come and take it back into ancient time, it wouldn't exist in our time anymore, and no one could claim it. Come back to... England, 1934. What a charming idea. But I don't want it. Right. That was episode five. Now, I must warn you, boys and girls, by this point, we are quite a way down the gin glass. Now, there are two reasons for this. One, we are remote recording. It's Sunday afternoon. We're trying to enjoy ourselves. The other reason is this is Fucking dull. We are on. We just watched episode five, which was called "Beware of Yesterday," and broadcast on the nineteenth of December, nineteen eighty-four. The huh, the plot summary, and I have made extensive notes on this. The plot summary is as follows: After four episodes chasing after Kay Harker, they decide that Cole Hawkins would never have given the box to him. The police ignore Kay's protestations that Abner Brown or Reverend Bottledale, as he's known to the police, is a crook, since he's part of their glee club. Kay opens the box of delights and speaks to Hearn the Hunter, who has been little more than a background character up until this point. He sends a shadow of Kay back in time to find Cole, who we we last saw a few episodes ago wandering into a painting. The box can send you back in time, but you can't take it with you, which sort of makes it a bit redundant, really. You have to find your own way back. There's a sequence of him flying back through Romans, Egyptians, until he gets to a beach with Trojans, who immediately net him and leave him in a boat that warps across the water to an island, and that is quite a nice effect, actually. Uh, He finds Bygone from Doctor Who, Force of Doomsday, ranting to himself. 
Uh, the old man turns out to have made the box of delights, but he refuses to take it back and end all the problems that are happening in the past. So he gets angry and fires lightning bolts at Kay to get rid of him. Kay then calls to Hearn the Hunter, who can't help, but the three irritating fucking children that are back at the house where they're all staying in real life, the hammering on his bedroom door for about two minutes solid, and that's enough apparently to drag Kay back to the present day. He wakes up, Kay then uses the box to get into Abner's house to see that they're arranging a meeting at 2.30 to plan to get the box back. Joe, who is the lead henchman, this fat guy with a pencil moustache, says that all the kids they've captured while they're trying to find the box, they should be released, really, since it's Christmas Eve, and given £10 each from all the money they've stolen from bank robberies. Abner then summons a boy that he's conjured uh, and hidden under a waterfall to listen into people that would be walking under the waterfall. The boy reveals that Abner's magic can't find the box as it's protected. Uh, but he will have his hand over it today. So Abner's excited by this. They traipse off to the dungeons where he's holding a bishop and uh, what's got to be said, a suspiciously large number of choir boys. He then locks up Joe uh, for because he's got a mind of his own, apparently, and starts questioning things. And then he goes, he wanders off cackling to his jewellery collection that he's stolen. And bear in mind that this is Christmas Eve. Somebody who's purporting to be a reverend has nothing better to do. The jewels are estimated at half a million pounds. Bear in mind that this was written in 1935. I can't imagine how big a sum half a million pounds would have been in 1935. He's still mad keen to find this box of delights. Kay, who's miniaturised himself to listen in, gets locked in one of the chests of jewels. Even though there's a massive keyhole for him to crawl out of. Uh, although within minutes of Abner locking him in, two of Abner's cronies, one of whom is implied to be his sort of bit of fluff come in and steal the jewels. Kay, who is wrapped up in a cloth, gets picked out of the box, tossed on the floor, where he lies unconscious, and this dreary fucking episode ends. Are you enjoying it so far, Dr. Exton? Good God, no. Oh, I really wanted to like this. This is 2020. The internet at the minute is alive with reminiscences about the Box of Delights. It's on, is it Britbox or something like that? And all these childhood memories are being dredged up. I saw this on transmission. I was reasonably fond of it as a child. I cannot say any of those memories are being dredged up with this rewatch. This is terrible. I am really, really happy for people who have a nostalgic connection to this and think that it is Christmas incarnate and the most wonderful thing in the world. I'm hugely pleased for you, but it's not for me. I don't remember watching it at the time. I don't have any childhood emotion or teenage emotional connection to it. It's as dull as shit, frankly. And Kay Harker just needs a massive slap because he's (laughs) fucked everything up from the word go. He was entrusted with this box, which he has kind of fouled up from the first second. What else has happened? It was a whole episode of not an awful lot. 
Do you know my biggest disappointment with the whole thing is that Patrick Troughton's not really in it. He was sort of an incidental character in the first couple of episodes. I know damn well he's going to turn up in the last episode. But I probably I... sort out all the shit that K. Harker has failed to do or fucked up off his own bat. I've got to be honest, the Doctor Who fan side of me is coming out. I'm really only watching this for Patrick Troughton. The rest, he's just magical. Whenever he appears on screen, he's like the grandfather you never had. Really? Okay, I mean... You might have had a different experience, but one of my grandparents was dead before I was born, and the other grandfather, he died when I was uh, about two years old. So I never really knew either of them. Oh, whereas I knew both of mine. One was a miserable old fucker that I, I never particularly got on well with. To be entirely fair, I respected him massively as a person. We just didn't get on at all because I wasn't his idea idea of a grandson, pretty much full stop. The other one I didn't really know as a child or as a teenager, and we reconnected when I was sort of early 20s. He was a lovely old bloke, and it's a real shame that I I didn't know him when I was younger. But I, I have no real childhood connection to a sympathetic grandfather figure. No, whereas I only had one grandmother, and she was basically, that was it for 20 years. Uh, she died on Christmas Day, 1998, which sort of killed Christmas. But I've never had, a, I've never had that grandfather figure. But Patrick Troughton is just a fucking joy to watch on screen. And the fact that they've got him, and he's part of the source material, but they've got him and he's not part of the story, really, is just a terrible disappointment. So I'm hoping that part six redeems itself. We have seen this pattern so many times with Doctor Who, where the first couple of episodes of a six-part story, they're good. The middle two or three are a bit paddy. The sixth episode redeems it all. Yes, hopefully so. Wake up! You're home for the holidays! What's the matter? Did you have a bad dream? Oh no. A wonderful one. <laughs> Merry Christmas! Right! Aha! That was episode 6 of The Box of Delights, beautifully titled Leave Us Not Little Nor Yet Dark. The Precy is as follows. I've made, again, copious notes. Opens with Abner asleep, having dropped off by a big roaring fire. He wakes up to find his pouncer, i.e. the woman who is basically his piece, hasn't come home. So he fucks her off, and he goes to the room with all the jewels in it, and then, for some reason, draws a pentacle on the wall that opens up to reveal a massive ceremony room. Uh, there's a bronze head on a stand that talks to him and tells him that, that all the cathedral staff have now been captured, but he really should have started doing it earlier, as there's some movement against him. The plan seems to revolve around cancelling Midnight Mass, although, uh, to be honest, fuck knows why, because it's never really explained. He summons a big monkey with wings to disrupt the trains, and then he summons another one to block the roads, and then a slightly bigger and crappier animated one to conjure up a blizzard to bury everyone with snow so they can't get to the church. The bronze head then tells Abner that the box is already under his hand. Instead of looking for it, he takes his chest of jewels and decides to go and search for the old man. 
K hides in Abner's trouser leg, having been shrunk by the box of delights. But he drops the miniaturised box, and Cole Hawkins, who we last saw riding a horse into a painting in episode 2, actually turns out somehow to be locked up in Abner's dungeon. We're not sure why. Abner is told that he will never have the box or the elixir of life, so he, in a strop, floods the dungeon to kill everyone in it. The police turn up, bear in mind this is Christmas Eve, at about quarter to midnight. They've been summoned presumably by the clergy, who have realised something is amiss. Kay, meanwhile, finds a ticket and a pencil in Cole's pocket and draws a picture of a key that Cole uses magic on to make real and escape from the cell. They set off to release the prisoners and see the box glowing under the rising water. Kay returns to full size and they release everyone. The waters keep rising and Cole, who wasn't previously wearing a hat but now is, uses his hat and turns it into a big boat to sail away. Abner's gang fly by in a plane, shout to Abner as he's trying to open the floodgates, and drop a bag of flour on him from the plane. He falls into the water and gets washed away. It turns out that the police have come because they'd been told by Kay that Abner was a wrong'un. Uh, now, exactly why you'd expect at quarter to midnight on Christmas Eve for the police to believe this and all suddenly turn up en masse, slightly unbelievable. However, snowdrifts ten feet high that no one can get anywhere through, but they're desperate to get to midnight mass. And uh, fortunately, Kay and the Box of Delights have a handy bishop and a choir that they've rescued from Abner's dungeon. They use the box to fly out of the snow, Hearn the Hunter turns up with a sleigh and takes them all to Midnight Mass. <laughs> the people in the surrounding villages couldn't walk five yards in the snow, but suddenly managed to make it to Midnight Mass in the cathedral. They have Midnight Mass, but how does the story end, Dr. Exton? It ends with, this was all a dream. Giant pile of wank, frankly. This was awful. This was all a dream. Now, I'm going to cast my mind back to when I was a kid. In school, we were told two things when we were writing stories. You never start with Once Upon a Time, and you never end with It Was All a Dream. Six fucking weeks of this. Fairly dull story, if I'm honest. End with Kay waking up on a train as he's pulling into the station, and it was all a dream. You tossers. That was awful. Dr. Exton, what's your critique of the series as a whole? Fucking awful. It was written in 1935, so we have to make allowances for a fuck ton of years in between. But I'm really desperately trying to find justifications for how awful this is. It's almost as though there were a number of different directors in here pointing in a number of different directions. So there are people like Patricia Quinn who are trying to do high camp and very tongue-in-cheek. She's Rocky Horror incarnate. She is wonderful for that. That's what you're going to get from her. Patrick Troughton is beyond wonderful in anything Mm. he does and in this. But in terms of plot, he turns up, he gives the box of delights to some random kid who fucks everything up at every turn. (laughs) 
And then in episode six, it hands the box of delights back to Patrick Chan, who sorts everything out and rescues everybody that has ended up in peril because some fairly ineffective second-rate villain has turned up and tried to take over things because somebody as dreadful as an 11-year-old child has tried to control this magical thing that... It's the fact that every line by Abner is delivered as if he's in his vinegar strokes. It's massively overacted. Um, box of delights. Okay. This box. Oh, find the box. Which is perfectly in keeping with a Christmas pantomime, as is Patricia <laughs> Quinn's performance. And it... It's all very broad shoulders, and it's behind you. Yes, it's no, it's no, blah, 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 blah. Um, And if it was done purely as a Christmas pantomime, fantastic, but it isn't. I can't believe how dull that was. Thank goodness Jin was there to cushion the blow. Jin, maybe. The final episode I saw after I'd had root canal surgery and I was off my face on tramadol, and it still didn't make it massively entertaining. Um, I would love to have liked this because I know so many people where it is the highlight of their Christmas and they rewatch the Box of Delights, and that's fantastic. Wonderful. I, I am so happy that there is a piece of television that speaks that much to you, but it's not that for me. I would love to find something nice to say about this. Bollocks to it all, frankly. I think it's this insistence. Uh, What is it? Midnight Mass is the absolute... They must have Midnight Mass. But it's never really explained why. There's a massive amount of stuff in this that's never really explained why. And it's very much a, this is what the story is. Oh, okay. Three seconds later, we have a desert Makina. This is a problem, but we don't need to to deal with it because X, Y, Z. Or Patrick Tratton's character saying, do you know what? I don't think this is going to work. And Kay Harker saying, oh, yes, I believe this is going to work. I think we're going to work this through. Bullshit. The thing that they're saved from hypothermia by is... Hearn the Hunter, and random old woman that turned up in episode one and hasn't turned up again, riding lions and unicorns. Yeah, whatever. They turn up as some sort of UK equal Santa Claus, gets them to the cathedral. Fuck alone knows what's happening in there, and there's some random shite about lighting candles. What do you do? We're having this fantastic thousand-year ceremony. But never any mention of why this is important. It's just sort of, it's been going on for a thousand years. Well, happy days. That's not really anything to do with the plot per se. I think it's fairly obvious that we haven't really enjoyed the Box of Delights. Fuck awful. I think what we really need is a lovely Christmas chin by the fire. The snow is falling. The children are excited for the arrival of Father Christmas, and we are all reminded of the story of a young couple 2,000 years ago, most probably arguing about which one of them should have booked a hotel room in advance. So with the fire crackling in the hearth, it's time to put our feet up and open the gin.
What are we drinking this Christmas Eve? We are drinking the signature gin from Batch. Now, I know we've uh, done the normal Batch for one of our episodes before. We have the industrial strength gin, that was. Because that's the only other Batch one I've ever had. So do they do a, a standard and then an industrial strength? I think so. I think they've got a bit of a range going. The only one that I'm slightly confused by is actually this one. Because we've got the signature gin, but I have seen it listed, which looks almost identical, to be quite honest, as Christmas gin. Well, yes, and I mean, this is a Christmas gin if you listen to the botanicals that have gone into it. So it's a 40% gin, absolutely beautiful bottle. Mm. It's uh, distilled and bottled in Burnley in Lancashire. And the Infobolic says Middle Eastern Spice Bazaars inspired the choice of botanicals which create the unique characteristics of batch signature gin. Cardamom pods, clove, nutmeg, allspice, berries, fresh lemongrass, frankincense and myrrh. So frankincense and myrrh is fairly Christmassy. Reasonably. What do we think? Oh, it's got a very nice... I mean, it, it's quite a subtle smell, but it's got mm. a very nice smell to it. It actually reminds me... Now, this is going to sound very bizarre. I sniffed the bottle when I opened it. It reminded me of that mince pie smell. You pour it into the glass over ice and tonic. It's nothing like that. It's actually quite... It's almost quite resiny. And that'll be, presumably, the frankincense and myrrh. Yes, it kind of reminds me of a bit of a sort of watered-down version of the, the smell that hits you when you walk into an, an Egyptian spice shop. Yes. And it kind of hits you with this, yes, it is a very resiny type smell. This is much, much more more, more subtle in, in Egypt. It's a, a, an absolute smack between the eyeballs. This has the resonance of something that... You don't get very much, probably because a lot of people don't go anymore, but when we were younger, you'd have the incense burners, the censer at church, and it left that sort of smell behind. I know that's not something that you'll be familiar with. I, I do kind of know what the, the incense smells like. This is much nicer. We should probably dive into the glass and taste it. Oh, I already have done. It is absolutely delicious. Quite, It's yeah. quite bitter. It's a, a smooth bitterness that creeps up on you. It, it doesn't smack you around the eyeballs. doesn't have too much of a, an aftertaste. It's subtle. It's really, really nicely blended. Um, I mean, I have to be honest, I have no idea what frankincense and myrrh tastes like. And if, if this is it, then it's lovely. Well, the nearest thing I can liken it to is, for those who've ever played the violin, if you've ever got resin on your fingers and then licked your fingers for whatever reason afterwards, it tastes a bit like that, only ginned. I like this a lot. It's interesting, and I like interesting gins. There's a little bit of beeswax in it as mm. well, isn't there? That bitter Again, aftertaste it, is not... It lingers quite a long time, actually, but it's not an unpleasant bitter linger. Mm, I'm not getting a huge a huge aftertaste, and uh, a little bit, but not massively so. Maybe you've mixed yours stronger than I've mixed mine. Unlikely. <laughs> but they do do a version of this with gold flakes in it. Now, we've just got the frankincense and myrrh edition. There is one with gold flakes in it, literal gold flakes in it. Oh, so doing a sort of Goldschlager thing, I always thought that was a bit of a con, frankly. I've never entirely been sure whether putting flakes of metal through your digestive tract is that good an idea. It's not really going to do very much. No, I suppose not. But either way, this is a lovely little gin. It doesn't really hit you in that this tastes of Christmas way like certain other ones we've had. The gin boffy is still the one I think we've, we've sort of uh, singled out as the benchmark. There are others, though. 
This is more the spirit of Christmas, the golden frankincense and myrrh that are listed on the bottle. It sort of draws you into Christmas rather than reminds you of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, it's a lovely gin. If this was given to me without knowing that it had frankincense and myrrh in it, I wouldn't put it as a Christmas gin, but it is absolutely delicious. Uh, uh, it's a, a five for me, without a doubt at all. Oh, um, five for me too, yeah. Interesting, lovely, very nice. I'd have it again. As a Christmas gin, I, I wouldn't really peg it because it it doesn't have those sort of cinnamony, nutmeggy, mould flavours. But it is absolutely delicious. It, cool. It's not something I can neck. This is very, very definitely a sipping gin. I mean, this is a gin, a gin and tonic to be savoured. Agreed. It's absolutely delicious. So when you hang your stockings up by the chimney tonight, boys and girls, pray that Father Christmas leaves a bottle of this in it for you for the morning. Have it with your breakfast. I don't think we encourage breakfast time drinking, do we? <laughs> You're right, kidding. It's Christmas. Fill your boots. <laughs> <laughs>